Today in the garage, we have Marco Shara. Marco is a defense lawyer with a particular interest in defending serious violent offenses such as murder. I've known Marco for years. He's a great person and even a better lawyer. Today, we talk about his resilience and his journey to becoming a murder lawyer. Whether you're driving your Alfa Romeo, shredding your fender, or prepping for a done application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. I really want to thank you for joining us. One of the reasons why I wanted you to speak on this topic, and we're going to talk about homicide trials and murders, is that I know a lawyer out 14 years, uh, you have a tremendous amount of experience in defending people on homicides. Tell us about this. How did you first get into defending someone on a homicide, and, and, and how does it unfold? Because this is the dream of every criminal lawyer. Yeah, it's thanks, Paul. Uh, it's this. Really, this story is, uh, it's just luck, really. I, I, my story has to do with when I started as an articling student, I was, uh, I was sick. I had cancer. And it, I had to abridge my articles. So two weeks after starting, I had to stop articling. And I was working at a firm. I was working at Hicks Block Adams at the time. And I hadn't really got to know anybody. And two weeks in, I get a call. I, and, and I had to talk to the partners and say, I'm sorry, I, I have to stop articling. And I had already, this was my second uh, diagnosis. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, and, a, and I gotten diagnosed originally during law school. And I did my cancer treatment. And I thought I was in the clear. And then they said, no, you're not in the clear. You have to do a more intensive treatment. You're not going to be able to work, et cetera. So talked to the partnership and they were fine and they said look whatever you need they're going to accommodate so a couple days later i'm at home and i get a call from christopher hicks who was the leading partner very reputable lawyer uh in the defense bar and he says uh you know marco i'd like you to come down i'd like to talk to you so i went down to the office and i spoke to him and we had a good discussion he said look you're going to be home for a while but we can still work with maybe if you want if you're willing to do some work uh, i have a case that is just coming in now it's going to be a really huge case and you could work on it from home dock at your hours and then at the when you come back to work we can try to put those hours towards your article so that you don't lose that much time and i said uh wow i mean that was a generous offer and i said look i i don't know how capable i'm going to be but i'm happy to do whatever so he hands me a box of disclosure and it was the very famous um jane kreba murder case you know the boxing day shooting was a huge murder case several accused charged and at that time i didn't appreciate this opportunity as an opportunity a professional opportunity i just looked at it like oh that's nice keep my articles so that maybe i don't get called i don't lose an entire year that's how I looked at it. But as I got into this case, I really started to uh, enjoy this disclosure and working on this file. And I'd have periodic uh, telephone and meetings with, uh, with Christopher Hicks, and we would discuss the case. And unbeknownst to me, the client had been told 
that I'd been working on on their case and about my circumstance. And I'd never met the client because I wasn't in a position to visit anybody in jail. And at that time, he was at the Don Jail. And I, there was no way the doctors would let me go uh, into that type of circumstance. So eventually, uh, with the help of, uh, you know, the great doctors at Princess Margaret and everything, I got back to work in April the following year. So from August to April, I was off, but I'd been working on this file. And when I came back, you know, uh, Christopher Hicks told me, look, we've replaced you because they carried three students. He said, so we had to replace you because we needed a student. But what I want you to do is I want you to be an articling student focused on this preliminary inquiry, which scheduled to start on May 3rd and go for four months. So unlike anybody else in the history of that firm's uh, articling experience, I get to article on a case where as an articling student, I sat in a courtroom with what I know now to be some of the best lawyers I've ever seen. And it went on for four months and I got to see Edward Sapiano and I got to see uh, David Medanic and David Bayless, Douglas Usher, Gordon Cujo, all these lawyers that um, to me at that time were all I didn't know who they were. I just knew them by reputation and I got to sit in and watch. And of course, Christopher Hicks. Um, and it was f unfortunate because Mr. Hicks was busy on a, on another big murder case at Bandito's murder case out in London. So a younger lawyer by the name of Anita Kyoto uh, was assigned this, this prelim and it was her first big prelim too. So her and I together worked very uh, hard to do what we could on that case. Our client was charged with murder. Most of the other accused were charged with manslaughter. So as a result, we were the younger lawyers in the room. We had to take a more of a, of a lead in that uh, prelim. And I wasn't even a lawyer. I was just a student. I'm just, you know, encouraging her and helping her. So all of a sudden, I get called to the bar. I get called in January of 2008. That's So I'm not, I'm supposed to be a 2007 call, but I'm actually a 2008 call because of the, delay in my articles but they abridged it for the work that I did and then I just had the benefit of following that case through to the pretrial motions and then you know you're in superior court and I did you know I argued in front of my first ever motion in superior court was in front of Justice Nordheimer on this case and not too many young lawyers get that experience that young and and the co-counsel in that room you know Justice DeLuca now um, Justice Mara Green now, other Justice Brees Davies. You know, this, this was the caliber of counsel at that time arguing those cases. So, you know, I have this benefit of being a first-year lawyer and arguing this uh, motion. It was a motion for a publication ban, which was, you know, obviously impossible to get, but it was a hard, and I had the first, I had to go first with all these lawyers behind me. And I thought I did a really good job. And you know, Mar I remember specifically Mara Green said, that was, you did an excellent job. And I thought, oh, th that's really nice. And then I saw what, what advocacy was when everybody else went. And I said, that was the nicest compliment I could get because I felt really good about myself. And then everybody else just, just blew me away. And so, you know, you get that benefit and you realize, okay, so I'm here and people, they have, you know, we lost the motion. But you start feeling like, okay, I can do this job. And then 
we got I, I got lucky. I worked at a firm that, you know, again, you know, Christopher Hicks, he had a first degree murder client, Kendall Polius. He got stuck out in, uh, in London still. Kendall Polius said, you know, no, I want to do, I want you to do the case. And I brought on uh, Victor Jurgis, who's now a judge. He was a partner at the firm. I said, you know, I was too young to do it by myself. I said, Victor, would you help on this? He helped. It was our first murder, first degree murder case. And we got an acquittal. And then I thought, oh, these murder cases are easy, <laughs> right? And I never, I never uh, got an acquittal again. <laughs> but it was a great case. It was in front of Justice Trafford, right? So then you get... He's one of my favorite judges. Yeah, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a judge who really pushes you um, as an advocate. And, you know, as a young lawyer, and Victor was the type of uh, hands-off mentor, he would... He would let you argue all the motions and he would just give you advice on the side. And, you know, he was the type of, as a young lawyer, I remember at the firm, the, the people at the firm were saying, Dick, you're doing the motions and you're on a case with Victor and you're doing the motions. And I said, yeah, but, you know, Victor's great because if I do something wrong, he'll tell me, no, you did that wrong. Do it this way. Say this. This is the argument. And that's what you want. And so you get this like kind of like luck. It was almost lucky. And then, you know, when you win one, we did. Then we had Chad Nerdeen, which uh, turned out to be the seminal case in front of Justice U.S. Chuck as, as, at the Court of Appeal where Justice U.S. Chuck uh, ordered um, that we have static triers despite us wanting rotating triers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Victor, that's Victor's client. Uh, you know, now Justice Jurgis was a Victor's client, but he's like, well, let's see if we can keep the streak going. So he brought me on that one. So then I got to do that case. And then we lost, well, that was a first degree that, came into a second degree and we won it at the court of appeal. So it went back for a retrial. But by that point I'd left the firm and then I got a murder case in Newmarket, And I said, well, let me return the favor. So I called uh, Victor Jurgis. I said, you want to come and do this one with me? So he said, yes. And so we did that one. And then I got another one in Hamilton and I brought him on. And so I got that. So it's just been luck. So you, you guys have become like the dynamic duo. Well, that's what they used to joke around. And then after, obviously, you know, he left me uh, high and dry when he got appointed to the bench of the Ontario Court of Justice. But as a parting gift, he was in the middle of a murder trial in Oshawa, David Knight, murder trial, big, very, very big murder trial. And he said, uh, do you want to take this one after I got appointed? And I took it and that's it. So obviously you're qualified and to uh, to run a murder trial and uh, i've seen you in court um and you're a supreme advocate um i want you to message to our audience the young lawyers out there what the key is uh, to defending an individual charged with murder and how important preparation is the 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 first thing you have to do is you have to separate yourself um from from the consequences the the consequences of a murder case are obviously extremely serious if a person's convicted it's a life sentence so that's the first thing you have to do is you have to resonate you have to be able to you have to be okay with that you have to say to yourself look i'm going to do everything i can for this individual i'm going to do everything i can but i have to be okay with the consequences of that that is a hard thing to get to that's a hard point to get to because until you you get to that point your preparation i found the cases that that i was preparing 
before I got to that point were a lot harder to prepare because you're, you're, you can't get yourself from under that feeling of, oh my God, if I miss something, this person's going to go to jail forever. You have to, you have to be able to be okay with that because then you'll start seeing the evidence more clearly. So you have to review everything. Um, the ben the best thing about murder cases is that they're always in front of a jury unless it's something tech technical legal question. So where the crown might agree to consent to go judge alone. But if you're in front of a jury, then you get into the theater of it. And the good thing about murder cases is that there's a lot to work with. The investigations are thorough. It's rare that, you know, it's rare that the police got the wrong person. They usually got the right person. They usually done a thorough investigation. Like when you go through a murder investigation versus another type of investigation, you you can see the the murder investigations are much more thorough, and the police are a lot a lot better uh, in terms of putting to get their case together. But there's a story to tell, and you have your client's story to tell, and you're gonna get that story, and you're gonna tell that story as best as you can. Right? I know, I know how many hours you must put in for preparing for the preliminary inquiry hundreds of hours and ensuring that the client understands all the evidence and you review it and understand what your theory is going to be and same for trial. But you talk about the theater. And so let's talk about the theater. The theater of public opinion is um, how dare you? How can you represent an individual like that? Um, and then you're in a courtroom in front of 12 people that are brought together in hopes that you know good common sense uh, in reviewing the evidence that's in the court is there uh, but in the back of your minds you must think uh, well do they get what is going on here uh, uh, are, are they looking at my client as if he's guilty uh, automatically how do you deal with that well the good thing about jury trials uh, murder trials is that they they're they're usually two three, four weeks long or longer. So you tend to build an imaginary narrative between yourself and the people on your jury. You start thinking, oh, you know, juror number two is in my, they're going my way. And juror number 12 is they hate me. They can't even look at me. They, they think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm my client. So you, it, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true, but that's what makes it fun. That's, that's what makes you when you, you have to get up every day and you have to go to court and you have to enjoy what you're doing. We have a very serious job with very serious consequences, but if you don't enjoy it, it's difficult. So you look for these things to enjoy as you're going through this trial. And sometimes it is fun to, you know, try to get in some questions or something where, you know, you know the Crown is going to be reluctant to object because they don't want to look like like they're trying to muzzle me or hide something. So, you know, I might ask a question that might be a little close to the line just to see, because I want the jury to hear that answer from the witness or test the crown whether or not they're going to object. Because if the crown objects, it might leave in the jury's mind that what's, what's, he, what's he trying to prevent us from hearing? So, you know, you do things like that. Um, I've seen some older... Uh, more senior advocates do things when I watch because I like to watch a lot of the older uh, senior advocates 
conduct trials and they'll do things like leave their binder at the podium after their cross-examination so when the crown is re-examining they're like walking over and getting their binder and kind of and i'm wondering is, is this all show for the jury or is this you know just that this person was absent-minded and left his binder in the in the podium so that the just to distract the jury but when you're in front of a jury all of these things matter and the, the theater of it like my my clients are very I keep my clients in a very strict line in a jury trial, especially in a murder trial. I dress them. I provide them with suits. I provide them with shirts. I provide them with ties. Uh, just because this, and I'm cutting you yeah, off, no, I apologize. Right. It's just, uh, you know, this is being videotaped and also on audio. And, and as part of the podcast, people won't realize when you say you have control over things and you ensure that your clients dress a certain way. Uh, we both have the same shirt on, <laughs> the same sport jacket on. <laughs> I didn't, uh, it I didn't, sounds like you're controlling this interview as yeah, well. I didn't dress. I didn't dress Paul today. No, I. I have. So what I've done is over the years, I've. I've kept. Uh, I, I've accumulated um, several suits, shirts, ties. Uh, I used to work in clothing industry, and I lend them out to other lawyers for anybody who needs, uh, you know, clothing for their clients because you know clients are often in custody. They are not They don't have the opportunity to go buy a nice suit. So what I will do is I'll facilitate a wardrobe for them, two or three suits, two or three shirts, two or three ties, and that way they can rotate throughout the course of the trial so that they look presentable in front of the jury and not coming to court. Um, you know, in a sometimes they come to court in the clothing that they're, you know, maybe been wearing since the time of their arrest. I don't want that either. I want them to look very presentable and very respectful. They feel better when they come to court dressed professionally. They feel better because they feel like they're part of the process now and not just a, a pawn. Sounds like you bring some good dignity to your clients. I have some rapid fire questions for you, if you don't mind, about juries and picking a jury. Um, teachers or no teachers? Uh, I'm, I'm a no teacher. I know that uh, historically teachers were uh, objected to by the prosecutors because of some report that came out saying that teachers... Uh, are sympathetic but i am a no teacher uh for no reason if somebody's wearing a molson export shirt in or out of the jury molson export no problem i don't like anybody who's wearing blazers i don't pick people with blazers okay um let's talk about your client are you hand holding your client all the time or you let them do what they want um no the client doesn't do what they want by the time we get to the jury trial my client is very well trained they have decided to have me act for them i indicate to them that they are to sit there and not speak and if they have questions we can discuss it at the break and if it's something that's urgent that they can ask the court officer to tell me ask me to have a break and i will ask the judge for a break uh, we do not talk and i don't speak to my clients while the trial is going on in front of the jury media um do you deal with the media publicly during a trial or not? Um, no, you, I behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I don't. And you know, it, I. I always admired. I remember. I remember. I just happened to be doing a trial um, when when uh, Eddie Greenspan was acting for uh, Petritus, and I. I noticed after every day of court. There would be like a scrum of of reporters around them, and he'd had no problems talking to me. I was very, very uh, envious of his ability to do that. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't mind speaking to reporters. Gen generally, they're very uh, 
respectful uh, people. I, I'll speak to them behind the scenes, but I don't do media interviews if the case, while the case is ongoing, obviously. And after the case, I will. Eddie was special for our profession. He had a gift he was able to convey to the public so they'd understand what was going in court. Uh, I, like you, uh, don't always feel comfortable enough, but I want to get a public uh, 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 information out as to how the process works. I don't try to uh, uh, create any bias one way or the other. So I try to feed the information uh, uh, to the uh, reporters so that they understand how the process works. What I, what I found was helpful is that if I, if I knew that there would be some information coming out of my cross-examination that might be worthy of putting into a story, I will tell the reporters in advance, I think you should watch this afternoon just so that they know. Uh, Cross-examinations versus closings. Cross for dough, close for show. What do you do? What's, what's, what's more important, cross-examination or the closing? Um, it, obviously, it's case-dependent, but um, when you're doing your closing address, the way I look at my closing address to the jury is that when I'm finished that closing address, my client feels that they're going to walk away from this case, and I've left it all there. And it's apparent that the jury is aware that I've left everything that I possibly have with them. And my client knows that so that my client can walk even just for that day after hearing his lawyer makes his closing, the client feels I got a chance. That's all I want. Uh, best self-deprecating joke you've heard in, uh, in during a jury trial. Uh, from me, like <laughs> from you or from anyone, I know, uh, you know, I always give, uh, I, especially when a witness challenges me and I'm, I do have the proper line of cross examination prepared to go back to them. And I said, you're right. My parents had ugly kids, but not stupid kids. So let's get back to this line of questioning and I pin them down to where I need them to go. Um, I, I'm not sure why, um, I, I don't want i i'm not the type of person that when there's a jury present i'm business um i don't make jokes in front of the jury and i make jokes in court if the jury's not there if it's just the, with the judge and we're, if it's submissions or something i'm a little but when the jury's present again it's part of that theater and i don't want at any point in time for my jurors to think that uh i'm taking this case lightly if that's just my comfort level. I want them to know that I'm, I'm all business. And, but as soon as the jury leaves, I'm the first one to laugh or, or laugh at, um, or to laugh at the, or make, you know, make a comment to the crown attorney or joke around. I, I don't, I don't, I'm all business in court, but I, I make a rule. And that's, I think one thing you're probably not going to ask me, but just my rule is, and I address the crown attorney at the outset of the trial. I said, at any long trial, I tell them, look, if you want to discuss the case, we can discuss anything you want in the courtroom. The moment I walk out of this courtroom, I don't want to talk about the trial. If you, we want to discuss anything, we discuss in the courtroom. That's my rule. Because I want to know that when I leave the, the, and I'm in the hallway of the court, I can, I, I'm, I'm off, I'm off duty. I don't want to talk about the case. And, and I noticed that when you, when you, create a parameter and very respectful crown attorneys will, will adhere to that. It's nice because now we're, we're working. We're on the opposite sides. When we're in the hallway, 
we're just two people, two lawyers, and I don't want to discuss the case. So that's a rule that I develop in long trials. What's your uh, uh, favorite uh, part of a jury trial? Um, I know no one's gonna, going to say this, but uh, I actually like the deliberation process. Uh, it's, it's, the jury's out, they're deliberating and you are just left, you know, with time. And if they go overnight, you get to go home and like, oh, it's another night, you know, let's see what happens tomorrow. And I enjoy that process. It's, it's some lawyers, I've seen some lawyers, like they'll do other work during that process. Or I, I just, I like to just sit and just enjoy the wait. You know, it's a hard thing to do to hurry up and wait, but I, I like to sit there and just enjoy the wait because as a lawyer, when you're in, when you are doing a long trial, whether you're at 361 or you're in Oshawa or Newmarket or Brampton, Hamilton, when you're waiting on the jury, the other lawyers know you're waiting on the jury and then you, you're not doing anything. So you could talk to other lawyers, you chat with them and they tell you about their cases or you can pop in on another case. I love that. That's the best. To me, that's my favorite time because you're waiting on a jury and the whole time you just get, you have an excuse to hang around the courthouse. No one's thinking you're there to just scoop clients, right? Your career to date has been fantastic. You're a wonderful member of the criminal bar, the criminal defense bar. I wanna thank you for joining us here today um, your last comments make me uh, want to remind everybody uh, that our bar is a collegial bar. Our bar is a helpful bar, and our bar is a bar of mentorship. And uh, I know that uh, you've explained uh, with a full heart how you've been mentored, and I know you mentor others to, today. Um, let's, before we sign off, uh, any plugs? No. Well, I just... You know how to get me? Marco at uh, marcosharalaw.com is my email. Or just check my website. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Paul.